to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 448, and it is part of our listener before and after the hunt series. Today's conversation is with Zach, and we catch up with Zach about how his fall elk hunt went in Montana. It was his first elk hunt. It was guided. It was something he did with his father. And you can hear all about that trip and get more context in the Before the Hunt episode, which was episode number 419. In today's conversation after the hunt, we hear about the hunt, how it went, the lessons he learned, the experiences he had, if he would do it over again in the same way, and a whole lot more. It's a great takeaway because I have not, and on this show we have not, talked much about guided elk hunting, just a little bit. And so it was great to have Zach's perspective doing a guided hunt and hear how that went for him and his father and his uncle and the special trip that they had together. As always, guys, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And also, if you are enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously. If you just take a second, maybe hit pause right now, and just leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using. We don't have any advertisers or do any paid promotion of the show, so your feedback, those ratings, and those reviews are what help us. So thank you for doing that. When you complete that, go ahead and come on back, and let's dive into this conversation with Zach. Well, Zach, welcome back to the show. I'm really excited to hear about your hunt. I got an email from you, success photos, spoiler alert, (laughs) Uh, but not a ton of the details and you and I haven't personally talked. So uh, I'm right along with the listeners, just excited to hear about the story and the adventure and success and lessons learned and all that good stuff. Before we dive into that, uh, for listeners who may have not caught your before the hunt episode number one i will leave a link to that in the show description so listeners can get a bunch more context and background but secondarily will you go ahead and just give a a real quick intro of who you are where you're from and then kind of the context of this hunt yeah sure and thanks again for having me back on mark it's nice talking with you again Uh, my name is zach Uh, i live in south jersey right outside of philadelphia um been hunting for about five years now primarily whitetail hunting um and this trip was my first trip out west and for the trip itself um it was kind of unique because this was a kind of like a birthdays i'll call it um hunt where this year I turned 30, my dad turned 60 and it's been, you know, it was in the works for about two years of planning this, um, getting out to Montana to do the hunt and, you know, doing a road trip to get out there first as well to do some national parks and just, you know, see the scenery out there. Um, so it really was, you know, I know we mentioned this on the first podcast, but it was a you know trip of a lifetime, but it really was, it was just an amazing time with friends and family and, um, having an amazing hunt. Yeah. So cool. What's, what parks did you all hit on the way out there? So we basically drove from Pittsburgh to Mitchell, South Dakota, which is like 16 hours, got up the next day and drove to the Black Hills and we did Mount Rushmore. Um, We drove through Custer National, um, ended in Deadwood, 
Next day, we went to Cody, Wyoming, but we went through like the Bighorn Mountain Range right in Wyoming there, which was amazing. Like I did not, I honestly didn't even know it was there. <laughs> and I was driving through and I was like, this is the nicest mountain range I've ever been through. It was incredible. Tons and tons of elk hunters along the way there too, which was cool to see. Um, from there, we went in through East Yellowstone down to Jackson Hole and we did Grand Tetons. Um, we were able to actually have like a nice hiking day. So we did like Jenny Lake Trail, which I know is, you know, really, really popular, go up to Inspiration Point, stuff like that. Then we did two days in Yellowstone. And then we cruised up to Bozeman on the Friday before Montana's uh, rifle opener, which I believe was October 21st, if I remember correctly. So we got into town on the 20th to kind of get ourselves together and ready to go. Man, that's a... <laughs> a heck of a start to a trip just seeing all those <laughs> sites and having that time and uh i guess you coming from jersey i guess began to have like some acclimation even um which is really cool yeah slow and steady which was the nice part about the elevation but i mean <laughs> it was just i was glad for those days where we didn't have any time in the car just because you know i i did the math i think we averaged roughly obviously sometimes it was like that 16 hour stint was like the big one but like we averaged like six to eight hours a day in the car and granted yeah. we're looking at incredible mountains and scenery and having fun and just you know kind of just having a good time but um you know it was a lot i'm not gonna lie but yeah. it was worth it so worth it yeah and it's you your dad and two uncles for that entire pre-hunt portion yeah, that's correct. So yeah, it was just, it was me, my dad, and then his two brothers, my dad's the middle. So his older and younger brother, um, and my dad's older brother is a hunter. My dad's younger brother is not a hunter, but he just, you know, was there for the ride just because again, I don't know if we're ever going to do something like this again. So, oh, that's cool. So did he go on the hunt portion of the trip with you and just didn't have a tag, but was there for the, the ride on the hunt itself? Yeah, pretty much. He didn't, he didn't get out as much just because, um, you know, and I mean, I know we'll get into it, but we were hunting from, uh, side by sides and, um, with just like how the, the setup was, it was kind of hard to get another guy in there, but, um, he did come out every once in a while. So it was good. Nice. So we talked before about yeah, how this hunt came together, you guys going guided. I know one of your uncles had previous experience with this specific outfit. Um, so again, there's there's more context to that in the Before the Hunt episode. I'm just kind of curious, uh, I guess before we get into the hunt, now we already talked about the you know pre-hunt trip a little bit, but one thing I've been wanting to ask everybody with these before and after episodes, so before I get ahead of myself, between you and I chatting on the before the hunt podcast and your trip beginning was there anything notable in that time so the kind of the the rest of your quote unquote preseason preparations uh yeah just anything notable from that time you know I, I wouldn't say anything super notable I just spent time behind the gun you know um that was my big focus just because I, I think I mentioned in the first one but I guess I'll just you know rehash it here I've been, I said, I've been hunting for five years, primarily a bow hunter. Um, last year was actually my first rifle season, uh, even in Pennsylvania, which is where I primarily hunt just because I have family with land out in the Pittsburgh area. So um, really, I just wanted to get trigger time and it was just dialing in my zero, um, you know, making sure my, you know, my, uh, my CDS that I had on my loophole VX five was, you know, exactly where it needed to be and just feeling confident to be able to take that shot. Cause I know, you know, or I knew going into it that 
the chance of shooting, you know, out there, like a 300 yard shot is super common. And like, you know, you've, you've hunted whitetail before, Mark, you know, like with a rifle, that's few and far between, you know, you're, yeah. you're 150 in right at, at most with whitetail nine times out of 10. So, um, really it was just the trigger time. Um, I would say it was the big thing. Did you, um, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but I'm curious that custom dial system, you know, with the Leopold, which is a neat option. But one of the factors there is, um, as you choose your ballistics, you have to somewhat account for elevation. And there's a range, of course, but uh, what did you choose as your elevation for that CDS and those ballistics? So that's a great question. And I agonized over this for so long, right? Because um, well, where I live in Jersey, you can't hunt with a rifle. That's a whole nother conversation, right? We won't go down that road, but I live at a hundred feet of elevation, like legitimate a hundred feet. Right. But where I hunt out in Pittsburgh, it's about 1200. Right. And where I was hunting in Montana was about 6,000 to 6,500, give or take where we were at. Right. So I was trying to like split the difference and based on conversations with loophole and just doing internet research and everything, I landed on 4,000 feet of elevation for my CDS um, with just, you know, Montana's average for the month of October for their humidity and temperature um, as well, because obviously that's information you need for the CDS. And, you know, knock on wood, it worked perfectly. Um, Leupold said that it's plus minus 2,000 feet, right? So I figured like at 4,000, I'm kind of covered. And like, let's be honest, anything 300 and under, like, 500 feet isn't of elevation is not really going to make that much of a difference. Right. Um, when you get longer, obviously that's going to start to factor in, but my, my plan was to take nothing over a 400 to 300 yard shot, to be totally honest with you. So I felt very confident with that 4,000 foot elevation and it, frankly, it kind of set me up for the future too. Yeah. I think that's a great decision. It all makes sense. I, I, it's been a long time since I've set one of those up, but I, I have set those up previously and you know, I remember one season in particular, I was getting one of those CDS styles cut and I was looking at my hunting season and it was like everything from Missouri to Idaho to Alaska. And I was like, oh, you know, finding that sweet spot because I had one season in three very different contexts. So, uh, but as you said, especially if you're, you're keeping your shot distances pretty reasonable, those effects are, are going to be minimized on all those differences. What, uh, what ranges were you able to shoot at, at home? Or I, I don't mean, obviously, literally at home, but um, in your home area in Jersey or in Pennsylvania there, whatever you had access to. Yeah, no. So I, I joined a gun club here in South Jersey um, that has ranges up to 300 yards. So I was practicing at 300. So I felt very confident there. Um and, you know, same thing, you know, if we went, if I had to go a little further, I knew I could do it Um, just because, again, I put a lot of time and effort into making sure I had a good combination with my, between my rifle, just practicing straight, you know, trigger time. And then at the same time, making sure, you know, I had the bullet dialed in to what the gun liked, all that kind of stuff. So just doing a lot of due diligence there. Um, a lot of help I got from my uncle um, who, you know, I mentioned in the earlier podcast has been hunting out West for 30 plus years and he, you know, reloads and all that kind of stuff. So I was just very fortunate to have a lot of access, um, to, you know, information like that, that kind of allowed me to practice for this upcoming trip. 
Um, and it, unfortunately where I live, that's the longest range around. There's one in North Jersey. That's like an hour and a half for me that I think goes out to like 1500 yards, but I don't know. I, I'm not driving an hour and a half, three hours round trip to, to shoot. Makes it tough. Cool. Let's, let's get back to you guys arriving in Montana. And uh, again, this is a guided hunt. So I guess part of what I want to hear about initially is, you know, you have a trip like this and as you said earlier, you've been planning it for a couple of years. You have an uncle who has experience doing, you know, a trip like this with this exact outfitter. So you have some some knowledge to go off of like that was um you know someone you know who has firsthand experience but still it's like you've never been here you've never done this and i'm just curious like arriving whether you want to talk about the outfitter or just the mountains or the the whole context like as you're arriving and just before the hunt even kicks off like expectations versus reality what what was your kind of initial impressions yeah, I I tried to go in honestly with as open of a mind as possible. And, you know, of course I asked a million questions to my uncle and everything. And, you know, his answer was, well, it all depends. <laughs> right. Which I feel like is like kind of a standard answer. Um, but you know, that day we got there, you know, the the guide reached out to us and um my uncle, as you mentioned, has used this outfitter numerous, numerous times before, but never these guides. And these were newer guides. They've only been guiding for two years, um, but they were phenomenal guys. They were really, they were dialed in. They knew, you know, where the animals were at. They kind of knew the terrain, like the back of their hand, you know, you could tell that they did their homework. Um, so, you know, really it was just a more of going in with an open mind and, and, you know, being willing to, you know, just be game for anything. Honestly, um, that was kind of my mentality going into this is like, Hey, I'm just here to learn. I'm here to soak this up and have a great time. Right. And, and, you know, execute when I get the opportunity and, and go from there. Um, so, you know, when we got there on that first day, uh, you know, like I mentioned, he texted us and then, you know, we asked, Hey, can we, you know, zero in or confirm our zeros? Right. So, the nice part was we were actually able to go up into the mountains where we were hunting um, after we got to the house and dropped our stuff off and got our you know gear together and everything. So that was kind of my like my first glimpse of what we would be hunting in. And we were at about I think it was it, it was around sixty one hundred feet give or take. So we went up and we just you know confirmed our zeros at two hundred, um, and then that was kind of it. We kind of just drove around. We actually saw a really nice bull, but they were low. That was, that was the thing that surprised me was how low those were. So like we were shooting at 6,100, but like they were probably closer to 5,000. Maybe uh, I could be wrong about that, but they were really, really low. It, like the basis of drainages, all that kind of stuff. And it seemed like they, they rutted really late too, right? That's, that's kind of what the guide was mentioning was like, he was shocked at how low they were and that, you know, we were hearing, hearing bugles and seeing him chase, you know, seeing a bull chase some, uh, um, uh, what's it called? And some cows. So, you know, it, I, I was kind of surprised at that too, to be totally honest with you, because I kind of expected them to be higher based on kind of just everything I was reading and the research that I did ahead of time. That's got to be exciting just to hear bugles. Oh, it, it was the best. I, it was cool though, because um, going back real quick to just like the trip that we were doing, we stayed in uh, right around Mammoth Hot Springs when we were in Yellowstone the day before we drove to Bozeman's so that Thursday night. And my dad and I stayed at the uh, Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel, which is like, you know, five miles from Gardner in Montana and everything. And um, if 
anybody's ever been there, there's literally elk that just like live in the middle of the little town there. And they were just ripping bugles left and right. And like, I was literally going to bed that night before the hunt, just like with bugles echoing in my head. It was pretty sweet. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, it's not, uh, I've had, I've had bugling bulls on numerous mid-October hunts, but it's, it's definitely not a guarantee. Right. So I always treat it as like a bonus of, being out there rifle hunting in mid-October and still have a bugling bull is always a treat. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Well, that's exciting, man. Um, yeah, I guess it, it is interesting as well. So you guys are there for the opening week, really the opening day of rifle season. Had Do you know, had these guides been guiding like throughout September and do, do they do archery hunts as well? I'm just... Uh, I don't even know if you know, but I guess trying to get an impression of like how much direct field time they're just coming out of. Yeah, sure. So, so as I mentioned, we had two guides, right? And one of them did has done archery elk the past couple two years, I think he said. Um, so he spent you know a good you know three months, four, uh, about probably three to four months out of the year for the past two years, just straight up elk guiding, right? Like that's what he does for his prime time job. Off season, he does some other things, but um. So he did do archery. The other guy, the guy that I actually was paired with, um, his name was Sam. Uh, he was primarily a fishing guide and he's been doing, this was his second rifle elk season. So, you know, they were, like I said, they were younger guys, newer experience, but they were still excellent. Um, so, you know, and we'll get to it in the story, but because of the archery experience uh, of guiding, that's why I was able to connect on my bull. Um, believe it or not, because he knew a spot where it was a really good archery spot and it just worked out that it was really good for rifle too. <laughs> so nice. that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. I'm, I meant to mention this earlier. It's, it is so worth highlighting as a consideration because it, I have, you know, very limited experience with guided hunts. I've essentially only done like the sheep and goat in Alaska and it's a unique situation because it's a small, like the outfitter is the guide, but for listeners who are looking at guided hunts considering guided hunts in the future it's just i i always forget to think of these but it's like so important to remember that the outfitter may have been doing you know a certain hunt for 30 years and be well established and all that but to your point like in to your uncle's point he's been coming out here for years with this outfitter but the guide that you're actually hunting with may be newer to this area and that's not to say anything bad about them it's just i always forget to think through those dynamics because i hear like oh yeah this outfitter's been here for 20 years and yada 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 but you could have a guide who maybe it's his first season or it's his third season or what have you uh and i just think that that's a something i always overlook in considerations when i hear guys talking about guided hunts yeah no that's a great point and um i agree you know because like when I was asking my uncle, you know, to your point of like, Hey, what can I expect? That kind of thing. He was like, well, if we go with the same guy that I went with last year, this dude's been doing it for like eight years. And, you know, he went on and on about that. And then we get there and it's, you know, guys that are newer and it's like, that's great. And like, they know what they're doing, but, um, you know, you, you don't know what you'll get until you get there. Well, unless there's something else I'm skipping, let's dive into the start of the hunt, waking up on the first day of the actual hunt day. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was one I was, I, I don't know if I slept that night before, to be totally honest with you, Mark, but you know, it was a beautiful day. It was actually really warm. Like it was like a high of like 66 day. And we legitimately like, there was like no animal movement that day. 
So it was like kind of disheartening because like you go in so excited, right? But then like you don't see anything on the first day and you're like, man, like I didn't even like see a bull from far and everything like that. Um, you know, we really just spent a lot of the day driving some logging roads and getting out, glassing, you know, things like that. And I, this is when, you know, I made the realization that like how important good glasses, right? Like I, I know I mentioned on the previous podcast, I got a pair of those Vortex Diamondbacks and, you know, they're perfect whitetail binos. You don't need to spend a lot of money on whitetail binos, right? But like being out there, like in the sunlight, I was fine, right? But like, you know, in the low light, early morning, late night, you couldn't see anything at least. And I was able to actually look through one of the guides. Um, he had NL Pures, right? And oh my gosh, like my goal is just to save up and buy some because those are incredible, incredible binos. Um, like it was amazing, but yeah, good glass. I mean, that was like my big, big takeaway from that first day. Um, another thing that was cool, um, that I really enjoyed actually is we saw a little, you know, uh, spike, you know, bull, um, and I was able to practice like a stalk on him. Um, and that was really like my first exposure to the terrain that we were in. Um, and you know, like I said, this was my first elk hunt, primarily whitetail hunting. And, um, you know, I just, I didn't realize how steep, right. Like <laughs> some of that country is as silly as that might sound. I was just, it gave me a new appreciation for the animal. Right. And like where they live and how they survive because like we were side hilling and, you know, it, it was, it was fun. Like I really enjoyed it, but it was also, you know, kind of hard work and everything like that. And it was just really good to practice. Cause you know, you never know what scenario you're going to walk into. So I felt like that was a really good first day. Can we hit pause on that, uh, stock? I want to hear more about it. So yeah, I guess what distance was the elk when you spotted them? And even, I mean, one thing I'm curious about on this context of a guided hunt, like you know you're not going to go shoot that spike. Was it your idea to be like, hey, can we stalk in? Can we close the distance? Was it the guide who said, hey, we're not going to shoot this guy, but like, do you want to try and close the distance? Like, how did that actually go down? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It was actually the guide's idea. Um, so we were coming around a bend up on one of those old logging roads and we spotted him. I mean, you can see elk obviously from you know pretty far away with your naked eye if they're in the open. So we saw him, uh, honestly, I don't even remember how far it was, you know, uh, hundred, 200 yards. He really wasn't far away. Um, but it was one of those where like, we came around and like, he saw or heard the side by side, like turned his head and looked and I could see, we actually saw, I forgot to mention this, but there was like a cow that he was kind of pushing. Right. And that cow kept going uphill. So we were like, okay, we kind of know where he's going to go. Right. Like, or, well, we have the high probability of where he's going to go. So the guide was like, do you want to get out and do you want to practice? We obviously, we can't shoot him. He's not a legal bull, but you know, let's, let's get out and let's just practice. So I was like, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm game for anything. Right. So we then proceeded to just kind of like get down a little bit lower to try to drop down. So like we kind of stopped where we were, we got out and kind of dropped elevation a little bit, honestly, and kind of side hilled around kind of like this almost um like, I guess the, like a point, right. And then we worked our way up and, uh, and basically kind of went up and, you know, unfortunately it wouldn't have been a successful stock cause he was, you know, long gone and everything like that. But just like the practice of, you know, Hey, in this scenario or in any type of stocking scenario, here are the things to think about, right. You know, obviously you want to try to move as quickly and quietly as possible, but you know, one thing that like 
I had to be better at was like keeping my head up, right? As silly as that might sound, right? Like, you know, you, uh, you're on uneven terrain. You want to look where your foot is. You want to make sure you're not stepping on every stick, you know, that's on the mountainside and making a million, you know, different noises and all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, you got to be, you know, head up, actively looking. You have to have the rifle in your hand ready to go, right? You have to be cognizant of where you're stepping in. And like, it sounds or it's, it's a lot harder than you think it is, right? Mm-hmm. Especially because you're on, you know, a, a steep hill that's, you know, almost like a V, right? And you're just like, okay, you know, that's a really good thing to know, like going into this of being someone who's never done this before. And like someone who's just used to either cruising through whitetail woods and, you know, setting up from the ground or, you know, sitting up in a stand or something like that. Like it's just a whole new experience. And like, it's spot and stalks a lot different out there than it is, you know, back home. Yeah, that's great. I remember you and I discussing in the first podcast of like, yes, it's this guided hunt, but if you go into it with the intention of trying to learn as much as possible, and if you communicate that with your guide of like, you know, taking some proactive steps to just try, whether it's very direct or not, but to try and communicate in some sense to your guide, like, hey, I'm not just here to fill a tag and kill an animal. Like, I'm here for the hunt experience. I want to learn. I want to soak in as much of this as possible and not just like show up, be a client, fill a tag, go home. I remember us discussing that. Did you up until this point or before this point, had you communicated anything like that, whether directly or subtly to your guide? Because I, I, again, I don't have experience on a ton of guided hunts, but it does strike me as, um, I would assume it would be more unique than more commonplace that this mm-hmm. guide would have offered you that opportunity to do a stock on an animal that he knows is not going to be a legal shot opportunity. So I'm curious yeah, if no. that was in any way like him offering that because he knew what you wanted or if that was just that was what he did. No, that that's a great point. In my opinion, it was more of he was being cognizant of what I communicated to him. Um, so kind of like before the night before that Friday before opening day, we were kind of just, you know, chatting and everything like that and asking the guy a few questions just about what to expect and kind of like what their kind of like game plan was. Right. Just so like we weren't just going in blind. But I kind of told him, I'm like, Hey, Sam, I'm good with like 400 and in, like, I feel super confident at that. Right. Um, I, my plan is to kind of, honestly, I don't really care what my first bull looks like as long as it's legal. Right. Like I'm here for the experience. And like, I was like, assume that I know nothing. And like, as long as I'm not getting in your way, I want to learn. Right. And like, you know, I'm not going to ask you a million questions, but like, you know, I'm just going to kind of sit back and observe and I'm going to be active and whatever you say I'll do. Right. Like just, you know, I'm, I'm here to kind of just soak this all in. And I, I probably didn't say that verbatim, but like, that was what I was really trying to communicate to him ahead of time. Um, and I, I, you know, to his credit, I think he truly listened. Right. Because, you know, as you know, we'll discuss further. Um, I really did get that which was like a really, really cool thing in my opinion. Um, so be, being able to do that practice stalking, you know, being able to, you know, have a guy that was willing and open to like sharing information with me was like, it, it was a really nice experience. That's great, man. I, yeah, it would not surprise me if he only gave you that opportunity because of what you just said and what you had communicated to him. Um, 
yeah so that's cool i'm glad that that would that was communicated and then probably it sounds like in in multiple ways you got more out of this hunt because you went into it with like that humility and the willingness to like express like i'm here to learn i don't want to be in your way but like assume i know nothing that's a honestly a great thing for a hunt like this i probably said that like four or five times that the entire trip, <laughs> to be totally honest with you like between the stalking and between just like going into it and then like when we got to the point not to jump ahead but like when we were quartering the animal out right like you know i wanted to do all the work and i uh, you know uh, could have sat back and been like yeah no we're we're you know we're paying guides to do this but like no that's not really what i wanted out of this and uh to your point just being able to communicate that really made a difference i mean again feel free to go into any other part of day one but you kind of mentioned in general it was slower going any other events takeaways from that first day no and you know i'll recap you know kind of like my big takeaways but i kind of mentioned the importance of good optics and then just the good the importance of good boots too (laughs) you know i just can't underscore that enough um like trust me i did fine like i had the pair of those insulated danner pronghorns and like they held up and they did their job but like you know, invest in good footwear. That's all I got to say, right? It's simple as that. Again, as silly as that might sound, and there might be people listening that are like, well, yeah, no duh. But like, I just can't like from firsthand experience, buy a good pair of boots. It'll invest and pay dividends down the road. I thankfully had no issues, but I just noticed, you know, even side hilling, like, you know, I could feel my ankle and feet bending. And, you know, thankfully I, I trained and I, you know, I, try to be in as good a shape as I possibly can be. So I was fine with that unstable ground and walking and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, good boots. That's, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then if you're cool with it, Mark, I'll move on to day two for okay. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so day two Sunday was just another really nice day. It was almost identical in terms of weather to day one. Like, like I'm talking like I was in a hood, like a, a little quarter zip, like mid layer hoodie. That's it. And like, I was super comfortable even early in the morning and it was actually interesting. Um, it was actually just my, the guide and I, um, and I guess I maybe should have backed up, but with the two guys, there was four total hunters. It was my, my uncle, my dad, myself, and my cousin who flew in from Pittsburgh. And so we had two hunters to one guide, right? Well, that morning for whatever reason, um, you know, my dad just wasn't feeling super great. So it was just the guide and I that morning. And because of that, we were actually able to, you know, get out of the side-by-side and actually hike, right? And like get into some territory and terrain that allowed us to uh, kind of have more of an element of surprise on our side. And I truly believe that made all the difference, right? Um, so basically we got out, you know, first light and everything like that. We're at the trailhead. Um, I, I guess I can't even call it a trailhead. It was basically like a blocked off, you know, logging road that we had access to, Right. So we hike up into there and, um, it's not far, you know, we maybe go a mile if that, um, we set up on a glassing spot and like, we're on top of the logging road above this drainage where like, it's, it is so tight. Like you, you can't even really see that well down into it because of how tight it is. It's like this super, super sharp V, right. Just drops straight down and up. You can still get down into it. Right. But you really can only glass from one spot. Well, we glass, we don't see anything. We're and the guide's like, you know what? Hey, Zach, let's move further back just to check it out. And um, keep in mind for context, right? 
this is the spot that the main guide guided in archery, right? So it's very, very tight timber, really, really deep and narrow um, drainage, kind of perfect archery elk hunting, right? So we go to the second glassing spot and we can't see anything. It's so tight and dense. And we're like, okay, let's just try one more, get towards the back of the drainage, find the third spot and just like, let's just look, right? Let's just see if we can see anything. Maybe we can get a nice like bird's eye view down the drainage because of where we're going to set up. Who knows, right? That kind of thing. We can't see anything in the third spot. So we look at each other and we're like, well, what what the heck are we going to do? <laughs> right? Like we can't see anything. Like, like, do we just go back to the first spot? Like, do we just like call it and like maybe try another area? I don't know. And to the guide's credit, he goes, honestly, he's like, our best shot is going to be that first glassing spot. Right? So we get back and... I'm not kidding within I probably 10 minutes of us getting back and kind of settling down into glass. I kind of like looked over to my left and I just see this ginormous golden blob and with like my naked eye and I like nudge Sam and I'm like, Sam, that's an elk. That's an elk. I was getting all excited and stuff like that. And Sam quickly glasses over, looks down and he's like, oh crap. Yes, it is. He's like, and that's a nice bull. And he's like, that's a shooter. He's like, okay, let me get my rangefinder out. He gets it out and um, he ranged him at 261 across to the other side of the drainage. And thankfully it was in like the one open spot that we could see down in. And it was like, like everything aligned for this to happen. So um, we ended up switching positions, right? And I had uh, a bipod on the front of my rifle. So I was able to get prone with the bipod on the short legs. And I think mine extends up to 10 inches. So I was on like the shortest setting, which was like maybe I think five inches or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but basically I was able to get prone and, um, I literally just clicked my CDS to the the 2.6, right, right at 260. And, um, you know, I just set up and I just like kind of found him in the scope and I just took like a nice big deep breath and pulled the trigger. And uh, first shot, smoked him, right? Dropped him on the spot, I think just from the nervous system shock. Um, and I started pulling my head out of the scope because I saw him go down, right? I was like, wow, that was easy. Like one shot, one kill. There we go. Awesome. Like I did my job and, you know, I got exactly what I was looking for out of this. And then next thing you know, the guy's yelling at me, get back in the scope, get back in the scope. So I'm like, oh crap, rack one real quick, reacquire him. And he somehow got to his feet, right? And he started walking and you know, he, the guy told me ahead of time, his policy was basically just keep shooting until he's down. He's like, we want this to be as painless of a death as possible for this animal. He's like, we want to do this as ethically as possible. He's like, you know, just, just keep going. They're really, really tough animals. He's like, just, just keep going. Right. So second shot, um, you know, literally hit like I, I right in the crease, like it couldn't have been a better shot. And I just could see, you know, him gushing and, I rack another one, keep following him. And he's kind of like stepping between trees. And the guide goes, if he steps out from behind that tree, he's like, shoot him a third time. I'm like, okay, no problem. I was ready to go. And I'm frankly amazed that the, the gun didn't go off because I was applying pretty good pressure to that trigger for that third shot. He literally took two steps beyond the tree and just tumbled down. And, um, like we were just hooting and hollering at the top of the, you know, logging road. And like, yeah. it was such a cool experience. And like, we were hugging and high five and it, like, we were just so hyped, so unbelievably hyped. And it was, um, and then, and then you have the sobering thought of like, 
oh crap, we got to get them now out of this really, really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a really cool experience. That's amazing, man. It sounds like you were able to stay calm, you know, when you spotted them and got set up for the shot and got them in the scope. Uh, that's impressive. Yeah, no, you know, thanks. First elk and everything. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I that was the one thing that when I reflected on this, I was honestly like really pleasantly surprised by myself with is like, you know, I, look, I've gotten buck fever before, right? When I've been sitting in a tree stand and I've been full draw and I'm like I'm shaking like crazy to the point where like I can't even pull the bow, you know, like I, I can't, I'm gonna miss, right? I had zero of that, right? With this, I, and I don't know. I was trying to like reconcile why right because again it was my first elk right and granted it did happen fast so maybe i didn't have time to register what we were doing beyond like hey we need to do these actions right but i personally think it was more because it was a rifle hunt right and like you're kind of disconnected from the animal in my opinion right you're not up close and personal you're not within you know 40 yards of an animal where you can you know literally smell them um I, I don't know, maybe that's just me and how my, how my brain works, but like, I just felt super detached and disconnected in, in a good way. Right. Like it wasn't like I didn't feel any empathy or emotion. Obviously I was elated and kind of, you know, sad that, you know, the animal died and all that kind of stuff. But like at the end of the day, like, I just think it was being able to like have that muscle memory and practice and trigger time to be able to like take a deep breath, you know, zone in and just like deliver a good shot. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I think that's kind of like, it, it just, it felt, it felt like everything that I did for the past two years came to fruition, right. All the work mm-hmm. of shooting, all the work of like working out early in the morning, you know, lugging around that 80 to hundred pound sandbag to, you know, all those different things of like investing money in good gear and, you know, planning this trip, it just, it felt like this culmination of everything came together. And like, it just felt really good to execute in a time like that. It was just a very reassuring thing for both like my hunting life and then like my personal and professional life, if that makes any sense. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean, it's all the uh, one that's part of like, whether you have success or not, that's what part of what makes a trip like this so great is not just the trip, but everything that goes into it. It's it's something to look forward to. It's something to prepare for. It's something to work towards. And you're essentially making yourself better as you quote unquote prepare for this hunt with training and stuff like that. Like, yeah, there's so much to it, but especially when <laughs> the success happens and you know you have put in a lot of work and all that, it's even just more fulfilling and more rewarding. And I I don't know how you feel about this, Zach, but as minor as this may seem, uh, and, and I'm not saying this to take like to say anything about this being guided or non-guided or like you know all that, but I would just say, for me personally, if this were my hunt, I, I would feel particularly, uh, I would be not, I don't know, proud's not even the right word. I would if I were you, I would have been glad that. I slash you in this case had spotted that elk and not the guide again, not to right. take away anything from if you would have spotted it and you shot it, whatever, but it is cool to be like, okay, yeah, I'm on this guided hunt, but still I saw this bull, you know, uh, it, it's just, right. it may seem minor, but if it were me, I'd just, that would be cool. 
Yeah, no, I, it's funny you say that, Mark. I was kind of reflecting on that too. And I was like, I was, I was laughing because that first day, I mean, we spent hours and hours behind the glass as you know, you know, and a lot of, you know, the listeners know with, you know, elk, being elk hunters, but like, I just, I just kind of laughed to myself that like the one, the first shot opportunity we had was, you know, 261 yards away and we could see him with the naked eye, yeah. <laughs> right? Like I just, I was just laughing. I'm like, we put all that out like that, you know, literally an eight hour day of glassing the day before and not even an hour after first light, we see it with our naked eye. It, it made me laugh a little bit. So, um, yeah, it was cool. I'm assuming recovery begins, as you said, you saw him go down. So there's not, you know, you're not having a blood trail and all that stuff, which is always great. I am somewhat curious too. I don't know if this is skipping ahead, but because it is a guided hunt, did you guys like quote unquote call in reinforcements right away? Or was it just you two breaking him down and starting to pack him out? Yeah, no. So because like it, I was, I wasn't with the main guide. He kind of just let the main guide know like, Hey, we got a bull down. Right. But before he even did that, right. Um, we kind of looked at each other and he goes, okay. So he's like, this drainage sucks. And I'm like, sweet. Okay. This is what I was signed up for. Right. And he's like, we can do one of two things. He's like, we can either go all the way around on the logging road to where he was at drop down and then go straight back up and then do the long way. Or he's like, or we can go the really, really, really steep way and just go bomb down and bomb straight back up. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, I remember saying this like verbatim. I was like, Sam, the distance, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So like, let's just send it right. Like, I I don't want to be lugging this thing around all day. Cause like, again, I told him like, I want to help pack out. Like I want to learn how to, you know, do the gutless method because I've never done that before. Um, So he was like, okay, let's just, let's send it. So we ended up just bombing straight down the drainage. And um, I guess I should back up before we did that, like right after I shot the animal, I dropped a pin from where I shot him on Onyx. And then I used, and I don't know if you've used this mark, but like their compass slash range finder mode mm-hmm. was like the most incredible thing in the world. I literally put it right at 261. I dropped a pin of where he was standing, right? And when we went down that drainage side and basically walked to where he was, and I knew he went down from when we shot him because he went towards the water, right? Um, like, we basically walked to exactly where he was standing and then we looked straight down and I'm like, Oh, there he is. And it made finding him like, like stupid easy. Like he, he traveled a total of 25 yards from where I shot him to where he, he uh, died. So like, it was just cool to kind of have that in my onyx to like, look back on. Right. And like, I started a track and everything too. So like, I kind of know all the stats of like how far we went down and, you know, elevation gain and all that kind of stuff. Um, so basically we got to him. Right. And from there, he was like kind of on this really steep embankment on like the side of the drainage. And we took a few photos and I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, man, this is going to suck having to cut this like big animal up on the side of like this steep drainage. And the guy looks at me, he goes, he's like, hey, what are your thoughts on just dragging him to the bottom? He's like, I know it's going to be more, you know, elevation gain for us, but he's like, it's just going to be easier to process him that way. And I was like, yeah, let's let gravity do its work. And we just started tugging on him and we kind of like gently guided him down to the base of the, uh, the drainage to some nice flat ground next to a nice Creek running through. And that's where we got to work. Um, and during that time, we didn't have really any cell phone service. We had like maybe one little baby bar, so we couldn't send any Onyx pins, 
But basically what we did was the main guy knew where we were because he kind of gave us that spot right from the archery season. But then on top of that, we took off our blaze orange and we hung it high in trees on the side of the hill, right? So he could easily see down and see where we're at. So we got to processing and we got about half the animal done, right? We got a hind quarter and the front quarter off. We got the head off and um, we were about to flip them when the, when the main guide got down there. So between the three of us, we made really, really short work of it. Um, you know, and I, you know, I have to say I, I used a Havlon and I used uh, one of those Argalia Ciroc knives and like both of those are incredible. My personal, just because I get skeeved out of how sharp those Havlons are, right? That Argali knife is amazing. Um, so, you know, kudos to those guys because they, they make a good product. Um, but, you know, we quartered them up and threw them into some game bags. And next thing you know, um, we're loading packs. And I had a, I still have my 4,800 K3 that I was using um, to train with and all that kind of stuff. It's what I carried on the hunt and everything. And uh, I loaded that up with uh, a hind quarter, uh, you know, the head, the, and obviously the, the antlers and all that kind of stuff, plus my rifle. And um, I just, you know, I have to say, I was just amazed at how well that weight distributed on that pack. Like uh, it, it was heavy. Don't get me wrong. Like it probably was close to a hundred pounds just because based on my training, I've used 80 pound bags before. And like, you know, it felt heavier than that just from the pure pressure on my shoulders and, you know, hips, but it really was not that bad. Um, you know, we had, it was like the total distance I think we went was only like a mile and a quarter or something like that, but we had like 500 feet of elevation gain in like half a mile. So it was basically like straight up and down. And like, I was, we were just like crawling on hands and knees on the way up. Um, so that was a cool experience. Um, you know, took some rests along the way. And I just, I, I felt great though. You know, that was the good thing. It was like, I was riding high on that adrenaline of like, you know, endorphins of like, you know, shooting a good bull. But then at the same time, like physically I felt great because I put all that time and effort for the past two years into being able to, to do that pack out right with zero issues. And we just got back to the logging road, took them down and, um, you know, we, we were able to get them to the processor and, Thankfully, the processor was able to turn it uh, really, really quickly. Um, literally in two days, I had my elk back to me because we were driving back a few days later. Um, and that was one thing I, I think might be important to highlight here is we did our homework ahead of time. So like we called out to different butchers in the area and kind of like, you know, introduced ourselves and kind of familiarized ourselves and explained our situation of like, hey, on Thursday, the what would that have been the 26th? we're driving back to Pittsburgh across the country. Like, can, can you process meat? Like how fast can you process? Like, I know you're going to be busy and we're not asking you for any favors, but like, you know, if we get a bull this date, like how fast do you think you can turn it? And we thankfully found a guy who literally turned it in two days. So I dropped it off Sunday and I got it back on uh, Wednesday morning, which I was pretty impressed with. Yeah. Um, and then I was able to drop, I was going to, I'm going to do a Euro. So I dropped it off at a taxidermist out there that, um, they ship all over the country. So I'll just have it shipped back to me. And that was kind of the second day. It was a pretty good day. If I say so myself. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. I would say <laughs> it's a very good day. Yeah. And I, uh, obviously you sent me a couple pictures. He's a gorgeous bull, like nice, dark and yeah, just neat, man. Congrats. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Do you know where the Euro is going? Do you have a good spot for it? So 
I got home and my wife was like, you know, I think it would look really good in the dining room. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we have like this nice big open wall that has like this armoire below it. Right. Uh, or whatever you want to call those big things that go in dining rooms. And it, it's kind of a nice big blank space wall. I'm just afraid it might come out a little too much. So it might go there. If it doesn't, I have a, a detached two car garage that I've converted into a home gym with like, you know, the full squat rack and all that kind of stuff. So if not, it's just going up on the wall in there. So either yeah. way, it's going to be in sight. Nice, man. I like it. What At what point did you get back able to connect with your dad and your uncles and kind of share the success and the story? I'm just kind of, it's a special moment, right? Like, yeah. how did that all go down? Yeah, no, it was awesome. So uh, literally, like as soon as I shot him, like the first thing I did was I dropped the pin just and then did the compass mode thing or rangefinder mode thing. And then I texted my wife, my dad, my family group chat, and then my best friend, Steve, and all in that order. And then and then and then my my uncle and Brian and in a group chat, my cousin, Brian, uh, who were out hunting with the main guide. And that was basically the order that I texted everybody. And all I texted was bull down in all caps. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was cool. Cause like, I, I got back and like, I had like over a hundred text messages of like, just people like, oh my gosh, like, cause my dad, you know, started telling everybody in blah, blah, blah. He didn't even have pictures yet. I was kind of cracking up at that, but, um, it was just, it was so cool and so special. And like, I just, I couldn't wait to get back to the house to like, you know, get back, uh, just to, you know, share the, the, the recap with everybody and show them that, you know, the antlers and the meat and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I just like, I couldn't like wipe a smile off my face, to be honest with you. We were, we were going back, we cranked up some Metallica and, and blasted some, you know, some Metallica, some good elk kill music on the way back to the, to the house. So that was a fun drive back. And then, um, we got back and like, I just gave my dad a big hug and like, you know, uh, my uncles came up to me, hugged me, you know, my cousin came out, gave me a big hug. So it was just, it was really cool. It was a very, very special moment and like something that I'll remember forever, forever. That's neat, man. Um, this is skipping back, but you mentioned hanging your European mount and how far it may stick out. There's obviously a I feel like countless ways to hang a European mount these days in different brackets and all that stuff. Um, one in particular that I've used, and I'm I'm saying this partially in particular, because uh, you talked about it sticking out. I had a, a similar situation where I didn't want to, I've used like skull hookers and stuff like that in the mm -hmm. past where they're held a little bit more at an angle, but they do come out from the wall. Um, I hung, uh, we moved this summer and I had a particular spot I wanted to hang a bull and I wanted it to not stick out as much. And Montana Ridge Outdoors makes a super simple European hanger. And it basically, instead of uh, hanging it at an angle that's coming out of the wall, like where the, you know, the front of the face is out away from the wall, mm -hmm. it hangs it vertical. So like basically the, the skull and the teeth hang in line and like almost rest against the wall. And it kind of keeps everything more compact, but it's actually a super cool look. I really like it. Um, oh, is it the vertical European hanger? I just yeah. it quick. Yep. And it's okay. only 20 bucks. It's super simple. It's just like a hook and then this cable that you insert uh, into the back of the skull. It's the easiest like 
hanging of an animal I've ever done in my life, and I really like it. So it's not a that guy. I have no. I don't know him from Adam. This isn't a plug, but I'm super happy with that one. And if you want particularly something that's more space saving, I would check that one out. I know. I appreciate that. I literally, I'll, I'll save it in one of my tabs. <laughs> yeah, it's super slick, really easy, and yeah, I love it. All right, that was an aside. I was I was looking that up while we were hearing about the rest of your story. So the hunt, the the rest of the hunts. You know, you had uh, other guys there, other tags. Was there any other stories or success, or was your elk, you know? Unfortunately, uh, no. Um, I was the only one who tagged out. Um, you know, I I felt bad for especially for my uncle and my cousin Brian because they combined i think they did in five days like over 300 miles on the side by side um just like driving these logging roads and trying to find you know animals and you know i went out with them for a few days after just to kind of like be there as another set of eyes and you know if they did get something to help pack out and all that kind of stuff but um we just had such interesting weather right where the first two days were like 60 70 degrees then Monday dropped down to like fifties and then Tuesday, Wednesday was legitimately 25 and snowing or colder. Like, so we ran the gambit of weather. Right. And it just seemed like going back to my earlier comments about like the elk being really low and kind of like late to rut. It just felt like there weren't a lot of like the, the animals were there. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it just didn't feel like they were super active. Um, you know, I was very fortunate that I was able to, you know, kind of be able to hike out, right. And like, kind of get away with the side-by-side and all that kind of stuff. Um, the reason why, you know, my uncle was in the side-by-side is because he, he's permanently disabled. So he, he's limited with his, you know, physical ability to walk up and down those mountains and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I just kind of felt bad that those guys weren't able to kind of connect on something, but, you know, it was still a good trip, all things considered, uh, just because, you know, I think they were more excited that I shot one being like a newer hunter and kind of like the only boy on that side of the family, right. Um, versus if they shot one themselves. So that was kind of cool. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, there was no other success, but it was still just an amazing trip. The, we've talked about this in numerous podcasts with different stories and tips and strategies but for you personally what was the strategy for getting that meat back so you got it from the processor but you have this long road trip did you just have standard coolers did you use dry ice typical wet ice anything in particular on that yeah no uh we literally just had two big like basic igloo coolers right nothing fancy like just ones you can buy for what like a hundred bucks from like walmart or anywhere like that and we literally just loaded it up in the base. We threw cardboard over the top. And then I bought about, based on what the ice guys were telling me, I bought about 70 pounds of dry ice. And I just layered that on top, half and half in both the coolers. And by the time I got it back, the meat, because um, I flew home just because, you know, I had to get home to my wife and at the time, 10 week old. Um, let's see, that was Thursday. I flew home, got in at midnight. I picked the meat up from my parents house north of philadelphia on saturday around 3 p.m it was rock solid like zero zero issues and you know for half the trip it was 70 plus degree weather so 
legitimately, I, I think that that meat would have stayed good for another probably close to a week because there was still dry ice in those coolers. It was pretty amazing. So highly recommend just, you know, fill in the coolers kind of almost to the top, leaving enough room for dry ice and cardboard. Don't put the dry ice obviously on your meat because you're going to, you know, uh, dry freeze it. Um, and then, you know, just let it do its thing. We opened up the, um, the little vents in the bottom of the coolers just so there's no like pressure buildup or anything from the, you know, uh, dry ice expanding, but worked like a charm. Perfect. I like it. Have you had any meals yet? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. I will. Um, it's just been a little bit of a whirlwind getting back into dad life. Yeah, um, man. You know, <laughs> it's, it's been I I'm just so unbelievably happy to be back with them, but it definitely took me a day or two to kind of adjust. Like I just, I, I underestimated, and I know we were talking before this, we started recording, but I underestimated like how much like a newborn can change in two weeks. Um, and just like being on a different schedule and, and different things. So it took me a day or two to kind of get back into the swing of things, but you know, it's all good now. So I will be making it soon. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm not sure when this podcast is airing publicly or people are hearing this, but we're recording it just a few days after you're getting home. So yeah, yes. I'm sure it's been busy. Yes, it has been. And the nice thing is I took the week off after from work. So like I kind of have this week to reacclimate to life and that's not elk hunting life. And yeah. then I can, you know, be back in the swing of things. So it's all good now. I don't even know how I would answer this question like off the cuff. So if you don't have a great answer, haven't had time to reflect on this, like don't, you know, don't feel pressured to say something. But is there anything that stands out from this hunting experience that you think is going to apply to change, inform or improve whitetail hunting for you back east? 110%. So it's funny, I was actually reflecting on that because coincidentally i was literally out this morning like i got back 30 minutes before we jumped on this um but you know the one thing just purely from a a like spot and stalk kind of like hunting whitetail from the ground at least on public land near where i live because that's frankly the easiest for me to get out with especially with a newborn um is just like the importance of using terrain features right like again, I know that might sound like rudimentary to like people that have elk hunted before and everything, but just like when you're stalking, like staying below, like, you know, at least a ridgeline out West, but like, you know, if you're moving through the woods it, for whitetail, it's like, um, you know, trying to use natural cover as best as possible, right? When you're reading sign, looking for tracks, you know, looking for scat, that kind of stuff, like, just don't be afraid to kind of like, be more, uh, I don't want to say more aggressive. That's not the right word, but like, I guess maybe say, maybe take calculated risks. Maybe mm. that's the best way to say it, if that makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, use very educated guesswork or use information that you have on hand to make an educated guess on where the animal will be or was, and then adapt from there. So I think it just gave me a lot more confidence to be more of a mobile whitetail hunter. And then I haven't connected on one yet this year for whitetail, but if I am fortunate enough to do so doing the gutless method, like, oh my gosh, where was this my entire life? Like, <laughs> like, you know, I still remember gutting my first deer and being like, what am I doing? You know, this is yeah. horrible. And like, you know, why isn't the gutless method more popular? 
Like that's going to be my other big takeaway is like always throw those Hargali game bags in my back. Right. And like, if I kill a whitetail, like just cut that thing up and take it right to a processor. Right. Simple as that. It's just nothing crazy. Um, So I would say those are my two things. Yeah. Great stuff, man. I'm excited for you. Uh, Such a fulfilling thing. Cool that you got the, yeah, just everything between getting an elk. Yes. But learning lessons, gaining experience, sharing it with family, adding, extra adventure to the road trip and national parks like just i mean you said it before like a once in a lifetime trip yeah i think so that's awesome i appreciate it and thanks for uh you know allowing me to to share this it was a really cool opportunity so um i greatly appreciate it thank you well that's a wrap congrats again to zach and thank you for sharing the story with us listeners if you maybe as you're planning your year this year have a special hunt, unique hunt, or something you think may be a good fit, I plan to do more listener before and after the hunt episodes here in 2024. So as you put your hunt plans together, if you have something that you think would be a good fit for the show, reach out and let us know. Whether you want to reach out about that or you just have other questions for the show, as always, you can send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. Finally, if you haven't yet, be sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.